Welcome back to the podcast, your listeners. This is Sherrod Craven, Technical Director here at Evidence for Faith. I hope you're having a happy Tuesday because that means we are back in Messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. Now, I hope you're not too confused. There are two session threes in this series because one of them is the Christmas special. I didn't think about my numbering and how I was doing this, so it's too late to change it now. We are in session three. This is the chronological session three of this series. <laughs> As always, if you'd like to help support this broadcast and keep it free, you can donate at evidenceforfaith.org slash give. That's evidence number four, faith.org slash give. And if you'd like to catch up on the entire playlist of the series so far, we have an entire course put together on our website under the courses tab, where you can just search or look up Messianic Prophecies. And without further ado, here is Michael in Messianic Prophecies. Hi, and welcome to Evidence for Faith. This is your host, Michael Lane. And in our continuing series on Messianic prophecies, The Road to Emmaus, as I call this study, that I wrote back, oh my gosh, back in the 1990s uh, for a youth group. And this is a fascinating series that we're doing. If you're just joining or you um, just popped into this one, this is a fascinating uh, journey through Messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. These are, as we've already talked about, these are things that were written hundreds of years, um, in some cases um, almost 2,000 years before Christ was was even born, um, at least 1,000 years and, and up to 600 years before his birth, and how accurate every single one of these prophecies are. It is absolutely astounding that even the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are, are dated before the time of Christ's birth, have all these prophecies in them. So these are not things that were written, as some skeptics have told me, that they believe that these were written um, 300-400 AD uh, to match Jesus's life as, as a myth that Christians put together. No, the evidence is very sound that these are ancient writings and that they uh, were put down centuries before Christ was ever born and how accurate they are. Mathematicians tell us that for one person to fulfill all of these is impossible, yet God is a God of impossibility. Nothing is impossible for God. He can do this, and he did it. And so as we're looking, we're, uh, the way that we're studying this, we're numbering the different messianic prophecies, and today we're on starting on number nine, um, of about 80. So yeah, this is going to be a long series, yes. Um, but we're going to go th uh, starting here at number nine. And the way I've been doing it with number nine, I give you the passage and then I'm giving you the title. So if you're taking notes, and I encourage you to do that in, in a journal or just make little notes in the margins of your Bible or whatever, um, or maybe you're doing this on a, a electrical device, that's fine too. But I'll give you the number of the prophecy. This is nine. The passage, Genesis 49, verse 10, and the title of this one is The Blessing of Judah. The Blessing of Judah. So with this, this is another promise specifically from God having to do with the Messiah. The beginning of this chapter actually finds Jacob still on, well, he's, he's on his deathbed. He's dying. And he has all of his sons around him, and he's um, blessing each one of his sons, going from the oldest, which is the tradition, going from the oldest to the youngest. And in this, he starts off with Reuben, who is the oldest and should get the birthright. But uh, he tells Reuben, nope, you're not getting the birthright. Nuh-uh. 
um, because of a, a, a sin that Reuben did against him. Um, so he lost his birthright. And then the next two were Simeon and Levi. And he goes, nope, it's not going to you two either because you guys committed murder and made me like stink. You gave me a bad reputation throughout the land of Cana. No, you don't get it either. Then he comes to the fourth son and that's uh, Judah. And when he comes to Judah, he says this, here's the verse, Genesis 49, 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now there's the passage. Now some of you are probably sitting here scratching your heads. I don't see where this is about the Messiah at all. Well, actually, Messi- um, our Jews and Christians both agree that this is a messianic prophecy. And I'll explain why in a second. But see, there's certain key words that are mentioned here. It says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. So Judah, a, a scepter is something that's held by a king, a ruler. So this is talking about a king, that Judah is going to be the leader of kings. Judah is becoming the leading tribe. Judah, it says, is going to be, uh, also says, um, talks about the ruler's staff. Um, it, he is going to be the leader. And this from this point on, Judah is the leading tribe of the tribes of Israel. When they come into the promised land and Moses does a census and stuff, they are the largest, um, as they're getting ready to go in the promised land, Judah has the largest population. They're the leaders as they walk. Um, You have the priests and stuff walking first, but of the tribes, Judah is the leader. Judah, when they set up the tabernacle in the desert, Judah sits across from the opening, the one single opening to the tabernacle. That's where the tribe of Judah was to camp. Each one of the tribes had different places. They didn't camp at random like we might do today if we go camping. Each one of the tribes of the 12 tribes was assigned a specific place around the tabernacle, which is where God was. God manifested himself in the tabernacle and Judah was at the one opening. The tabernacle only had one way in. Only one way to come to God. Sort of like what Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father except through me. And he's of the tribe of Judah. So Judah is the way you come in to the presence of God. So they camped right in the front opening of the tabernacle. They are also the leading tribe. And as you know, if you've read uh, the Old Testament, the book of First Second Kings, First Second Chronicles, you will read that almost all of the kings, well, actually, well, just about almost all of the kings that and rulers of Israel, with like one little exception at one point until the Babylonian captivity, what you're going to see, they're all descendants of Judah. So Judah is going to be the king. And now, so that's part of this verse. Judah is getting the significant birthright. By getting the significant birthright, they are now the major tribe. All the other tribes are going to bow down to, to him. Um, and even says in this verse, they shall be in, uh, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Meaning that all the other tribes, you listen to Judah. Judah is the leader. This is quite interesting, because remember, he's the fourth-born son. Um, not the firstborn, but Jacob explained on his deathbed why he was doing this, and we've already covered that. Now, this passage uses something else. In the uh, English Standard Version, it says, until tribute comes to him. Tribute. Now, what I love to encourage you to do is to use different translations when you study your Bible. 
When you are doing a Bible study, get at least through two, three, four, maybe even five translations. This is really simple today because you can download things like biblehub.com and you can enter a passage like in this case, Genesis 49.10, and then you can hit a parallel marker on, on the website and it will give you like about 30 different translations of that one verse. And you can just read them one right after the other. I I strongly encourage you to always look at different translations. Um, some translations are uh, word for word. They try and follow the exact wording. Others, they try and follow um, the thought aspect. The English Standard Version that we're using is a word for word. Um, but even in so, with word for word, you'll find variations. Um, New American Standard is, a, is one. The Interlinear Bible, th these are word for word. And even so, in these, you're gonna see there's variation in the words. In English Standard, it says tribute. That confuses people. In other translations, it reads, until Shiloh comes. Shiloh comes. Why would it say Shiloh? What's that? Well, you might be sitting here thinking, oh, isn't Shiloh a place where they stored the tabernacle before David built, uh, had the temple uh, placed and Solomon built the temple? That is true, but that's not the same, that's not what this is talking about. It is not talking about a city. Um, Shiloh is not meaning that. It, it's got a different type of meaning to it. The exact meaning is uncertain. Scholars all over today, different denominations, different, um, whether Jewish or Christian, uh, Messianic Jews, they can't all agree on the actual literal meaning of this, but we all can agree on this. It is a cryptogram, or shall I say a cipher. It's a cipher, a puzzle. And it is always a reference to the Messiah. So Shiloh, even though the meaning is uncertain, it's referencing the Messiah as a cipher. And Bible scholars all over accept this, and they, they talk about this frequently, that that's what this is actually talking about, that this is a reference dealing with the Messiah. Um, and this, this, uh, this ruler from Judah is going to be the Messiah. Thus, the Messiah comes from the tribe of Judah. In a way, you can read this verse and like this now. Let me real, uh, read it in a little different context by putting the cipher in there. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until the Messiah comes. That is what this is actually saying. Um, now, it's, this verse obviously becomes very important in Messianic prophecy because it specifically announces that the Messiah is directly from the tribe of Judah, which is what we're going to see in many more prophecies coming. It's going to be uh, told again and again and again that the Messiah will come from Judah. In other words, God is telling the Jews throughout time, because this was written down, the Jews would study this, throughout time, how will you recognize the Messiah? He's going to come from the tribe of Judah. If he doesn't come from the tribe of Judah, if somebody claims to be the Messiah, he's not from the tribe of Judah, and the Jews were very good at keeping their genealogies, you reject him because this is a false Messiah. This is so important to him. So to the Jews, this meant that the tribe of Judah would now be the major tribe of Israel, the tribe of where all the real kings, because this is talking about rulers, the scepter shall not depart, meaning the kingship is going to go through this, through the line of Judah. So the real king, the real leaders of Israel are going to be from the tribe of Judah. And this is true in the Old Testament days. And... Um, 
Judah was a major tribe even up until the time of the, the Roman destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Judah was still the major tribe. Now, there is in, indeed strong in biblical evidence to support this. You can see this, and we will as we go through more prophecies. For instance, when, when God told David that his seed will include the Messiah, and then his descendants will always be uh, the leaders of Judah. We can see that that, that was true um, after David's death. We see these things taking place. So specifically in this prophecy, we get, first of all, God's promise. Eventually, it's going to come down to David, too. David's going to have reference back to, to, do, to, uh, to Judah. But David is a son, uh, a descendant of Judah. David's descendants would sit on the throne until the attack by Babylon in 587 B.C., by Nebuchadnezzar when Judah ceased to exist as a nation. But even, get this, even during the post-exile period, if you study that very carefully, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, you start to see something interesting. The tribe of Judah, a person, um, Judah was, was governed still by a descendant of Judah. His name was Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the governor of Judah when the Jews came back from the Babylonian captivity. And guess what tribe Zerubbabel was from? Judah. In the intertestinal time period, the Holy Land was called Judea. Where do they get that name? Where do we get Judea? From the name Judah. This is where we get today the word Jews. And even during the New Testament period, they were called Jews. Why are they called Jews? Because descendants of Judah. That's how it happened. And the political power of Judah did come to an end in 6 AD when Rome made it a Roman province. And then Herod the Great, of course, came to power um, right at the time with Jesus's birth. Jesus is, of course, the king of kings, and he is the ruler for eternity. Um, he comes and he's even ruling today. So when um, the political party ends, um, or the, uh, the Roman uh, political party of Judah ends by the Romans, um, we see here now Messiah has come on the scene, um, our Christmas story. Besides uh, this issue from this passage, that term scepter, like I say, is very important because scepter refers to a major king or a ruler. That's what it's talking about. So that was that one. Let's go to number 10. Number 10, we're, we're, we're still in Genesis this is Genesis 49, and it's going to be entitled The Twelve Tribes. Now, actually, this is the last messianic, major messianic prophecy that we see in the book of Genesis, because then we're going to go into Exodus. But in Genesis, we have the, uh, our tenth prophecy. See, there's a lot of, isn't there a lot of Old Testament prophecies in the book of Genesis? This isn't some fable book. This is, this is a very, very important book of the Torah. Um, and it has so much to say about the Messiah as what we've seen through here. So Genesis, actually, it's the whole chapter. I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but you can do that on your own. It's basically naming the 12 tribes. And I'm calling this, this is number 10, Genesis 49, the 12 tribes. Now, how do we get 12 tribes? Though Jacob, Jacob had 12 sons, they're not the possessors of the promised land. Exactly. I remember years ago, and I was teaching this with a, a youth group, and uh, as we were going through this lesson, uh, and this right before we hit this thing, we were still on the last prophecy, uh, a person actually asked me in, in the youth group, asked me the question. They said, I just learned something that I don't understand. I, I said, what is it? And he says, 
of the 12 tribes that we always talk about in the Old Testament, the 12 tribes of, of Israel, yeah. Joseph was a son of Jacob, right? And I go, yeah. Joseph is not one of the, well, uh, one of the tribes. And I said, no, he's not. And I said, how does that work? And I said, well, um, you have a tribe called Ephraim and Manasseh, who are, were Joseph's kids. Joseph was their father. And Jacob adopts them, and so they inherit the land instead of Joseph. But they said, well, wait a minute. You had 12, you take away Joseph, that would leave 11, you add two, that would make 12, 13. And I go, no, there's another one <laughs> that's gonna fit into this. So they were, the, the guy was, uh, who was asking a question was really puzzled, he was asking a great question. As I have found that a lot of people don't understand this. And it's so simplistic. How do you get the 12 tribes? Because the Messiah comes from the tribe of Judah, but there's 12 tribes that are constantly talked about in prophecies. Now, how do we get the 12 tribes? As I said, Jacob had 12 sons, but one of them, Levi, let's start with him. Levi does not inherit land. No, Levi is going to be the tribe of the priesthood. Uh, we have not just the priesthood, but um, the Levites also come from the descend, uh, from Levi. They're, they are descendants of Levi. Levi, by Jacob here, is not getting any land. As they come into the promised land, Levi does not get land. They're the land, uh, they're the, the tribe of the priests, like I say, responsible for the tabernacle and all the priestly duties. And you have the Levites themselves who are the temple workers and the tabernacle workers and things like that. They don't inherit land, but they do inherit something. They get 48 cities to dwell in. This is foretold actually in verse 7. This is actually talked about in verse 7. Um, Jacob, while he's on his deathbed and dying, is going to make a statement about this. And in uh, verse 7, he says, Curse be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and, get this, scatter them in Israel. He's talking specifically to his son Levi. And he says, I'm going to scatter you. So they were scattered. That's exactly what happened. Prophecy coming true here. The tribe of Levi, as they are after years, uh, after Jacob's death, and they go through the slavery in Egypt and then the Exodus, and they come into the promised land, they are not allowed to have any land on their own. They don't get a land grant like all the other tribes. No, they don't. Um, because it says, I will scatter them and disperse them. So what happens, they get 48 cities. And these cities become very important. The Levite tribe inherits 48 cities and they're scattered, literally, just like it says here, they are scattered throughout the whole nation. And that is their inheritance. So they don't get land, they get cities instead that they get to be in charge of. So that's what happens to one tribe. That's why you don't see of the 12 tribes, they're uh, getting land. The land, uh, the tribe, tribal land of Levi doesn't exist. There is none. Now, the second part of this is what I mentioned before with the, the student. He said Joseph. Joseph actually himself did not inherit any land either. No. Instead, his two sons will inherit the land. This is so interesting because Ephraim and Manasseh are the sons of Joseph, and Jacob basically adopts them and gives them 
the blessing that uh, like would go to Joseph, he gives them the blessing and they are counted now as 12 tribes, in the 12 tribes. So that's where this all comes from. At the end of Genesis, um, we're going to see a similarity now with, with this whole thing, because we're going to see a similarity uh, with, with Israel and with Jesus having to do with the country Egypt. Because where is this all taking place? Where is Jacob dying? He's in Egypt. Where is Joseph and his brothers? They're in Egypt. So everything is now in Egypt. They had been living in Canaan, but now they have come to Egypt. And at the end of Genesis, we find Jacob taking his people, um, his infant nation, out of Canaan, and he moves his family you know the whole story with Joseph and his brothers and what they did and um, how uh, Joseph um, becomes like one of the chief rulers of, of Egypt. And then um, when they finally uh, find out who he is, they go and get their father and the whole uh, Jacob brings the whole family, everybody, the sheep, everything. They all move from Canaan over to Egypt. Now, here's, here's the key thing having to do with prophecy. Do you understand why Jacob moved? his family, in the latter half of the book of Genesis, as the book of Genesis is ending, why he moved his family and everything, his crop, or not, uh, his, his sheep, everything, everything he owes, owns he moves to Egypt. Why? It was to escape death. There was famine in the land. If they stayed there, they were going to die. So they fled to Egypt to escape death death. The 12 tribes and the father of the tribes, Jacob, all their wives, all their sons, all their kids, all their, the whole family, they all flee from death to go to Egypt. So it's done to save them, to go to Egypt for a safe period of time. Eventually, as the story goes, once you get into the book of Exodus, our next book, we start to see something. They have been dwelling, and they were blessed when they came into that land. But then things got sort of bad for them. But God is going to take them back. And then they go back to Canaan. They go back to what God calls the promised land, the land I promised your fathers. And so he leads them back. So did you catch it now? If you, I'm sure some of you are way ahead of me on this. Jacob, in the book of Genesis, because of death going to descend upon them, they flee to Egypt. After that is all over, they go back. When Canaan is prosperous, there's no famine, there's no death there like that, God leads them back himself. He leads them back into the land, the promised land where they came from. Now, go to the Christmas story. What do you see? Jesus as a boy, born in Bethlehem, a little while later, now when he was born, we don't exactly know. Um, many scholars believe it was somewhere between 6 BC and 4 BC. We, we don't know exactly the exact time frame, but we do know exactly where he was born, and it was in Bethlehem. And here we get into people who often say, Jesus wasn't born in Bethlehem. He was born of Nazareth, in Nazareth because he's always called Jesus of Nazareth. He lived in Nazareth. Yes, uh, most of his life. But the thing is, he was born, and this is so specific, it is mentioned more than once that he was actually born in Bethlehem. So he's in Bethlehem, which is, by the way, of a city in the, um, in the land of Judah. All fits. You can see how this falls together now. And so 
remember how the story goes. Herod finds out from the wise men, the magi who have come over, that the, the baby, uh, Jesus, this, this Messiah, they didn't know the name, the Messiah was being born, who had been prophesied. This ruler, this king of kings is, is being born. Well, Herod called himself the king of kings. That was his title. Of course, he's very jealous about this. And so, as you know, the story goes, he tries to kill the baby Jesus. And so he, he knows, he, um, he asks the wise men to tell him when, when they find uh, the Messiah to come tell him so he can, <clears throat> yeah, right, go and worship him. He was going to go and murder him. Uh, wise men, by God, are told, nope, he's lying. Take off, go back home. They do. Herod finds out that he's been... Um, cheated out of his his chance of killing this this new king and so he sends soldiers to Bethlehem. Now Bethlehem was a small little village at this time and during this time we, we know also that Jesus um, was probably a toddler. That's the Greek word when the wise men come. It's not the uh, word infant. Not he wasn't The wise men were not there the night he was born because it says there that they, they came to this, um, that he was born in a stable, not in their house, and that the word that's being used is that he was an infant. Whereas When the wise men come, they go to the home, the house of Jacob and Mary. Read it carefully. You will see this. And the word that is used there in the Greek is a toddler, not an infant. So a couple of years have passed since then. And Herod died um, in 4 BC. So we know it's got to be somewhere right before this event happening before Herod's death. So Herod um, is ordering all the baby boys uh, to be killed. Uh, all infant, all toddler boys in Bethlehem to be murdered. Um, And so as he does this, um, of course, Jacob and Mary, or Joseph and Mary are told in a dream that this was going to happen. And they are told, get up, take the child and flee to where? Egypt. Now here's the point. Why are they going to Egypt? Go back to Genesis. You see the exact same thing. Jacob moved his family because to stay there meant death. Mary and Joseph take the infant Jesus, the Messiah, the King of Kings. They take him. He's a toddler. And they move also to Egypt to escape death. Same purpose. And it's all talked about in Matthew uh, chapter 2, verses 13 through 20. You get the whole story on this. You can read. Um, But God... It's so interesting that God placed the infant nation. Now get this. This is so cool. God took the infant nation back in Genesis, the infant nation of Israel, Jacob's, has his name changed, Israel, takes that nation and places them in Egypt for a while and then brings them back. Now, that's symbolic because what we're going to see with the story of Jesus' birth, Jesus, um, God takes the baby Jesus and his family an infant here again, not an infant nation, an infant child, and takes him, has him go to Egypt to escape death. And then they come back. He leads them out. Jacob's tribes go are led out of Egypt. Jesus is brought back from Egypt, and they move all the way back up to Nazareth at that point. And you can see this. We're going to talk about this later, much later on. And one of the later, um, we get to the book of Hosea, because in Hosea 11, verse 1, it reads, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. That is a prophecy 
talking not just about the historical thing with Jacob and his, his the 12 tribes, it's also talking about the infant Jesus, that that's what this is mentioning. So true, this passage originally referred to uh, Hosea 11.1, 1, to what took place in the book of Genesis. But in Matthew's gospel, in chapter 2.15, it's used again. Matthew quotes that section and uses that showing the, um, the messianic prophecy that Jesus is going to have to go to Egypt and come out of Egypt and go uh, back, and that's when they move to Nazareth. So we must understand that Matthew, at the time of the writing, was under the influence of the Holy Spirit. So if Matthew says this is messianic, this is messianic. And it is. It all fits perfectly. As to the length of time Jesus and his family was in Egypt, no one knows. We have no idea. It, God didn't seem to think that it was that important for us to know, so he didn't tell us. And it's, it's that simple. Um, by the way, there are some interesting things having to do with um, Roman historians, because some Roman historian um, actually wrote that Jesus lived for a while. Now, this is a non-Christian. This is not a Christian source. But there is a Roman historian, I cannot think of his name off the top of my head, but he actually wrote that, uh, you can send me a message or something, be glad to give you a quote on this from an ancient source. Um, he actually wrote that Jesus was a, was a miracle worker. He could do magic and stuff, which he learned when he was living and studying in Egypt. So even the Romans Roman historians got some of the story partially correct here that Jesus did live for a time in Egypt, which is what we see here. And that's what this whole chapter 49 point um, is dealing about. The nation of Israel goes there. Jesus also. It's a, it's a preview of what the Messiah will do in his birth. He will go to Egypt and then he will come out of Egypt and go to, eventually go to Nazareth as we We'll uh, learn later on. And why they go to Nazareth, actually, that's a prophecy too, because they couldn't go back to Bethlehem because they had to fulfill prophecy, but I'm getting way ahead of myself because there's a prophecy in the book of Isaiah that says that he had to come from that area. So that's why they went up to Nazareth. But with that, we have now finished the book of Genesis in the Messianic Prophecy. So the next time we get together, um, we're going to be doing Exodus, and we'll be starting with Exodus chapter 3, and that'll be our next lesson. And I thank you so much for joining. Please, please uh, feel free to leave comments. Uh, if you have questions about this, I'd be glad to answer them. Um, or if you would love to help support our ministry, we would love that. Uh, the ministry, Evidence for Faith, is, is new. Um, we started this May 1st, and we're, God is just tremendously blessed. I have um, been invited to over 50 places speaking uh, since May 1st, and we've been doing videos and podcasts. We've built a studio, um, been doing a lot of traveling. It, it, we don't charge. Um, if you want me to come and speak at your events or at your church or something, we don't charge. We just ask for an offering. That's it. We, you know, we take it that God's going to bless the ministry, and that's where it's going to do. I'm not going to charge anybody for hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. So um, until we meet again on the next podcast, I want to thank you for listening and join me again for the next lesson as we explore the messianic prophecies of the Messiah the road to Emmaus. Take care and God bless. I hope you enjoyed that episode. 
A big thank you is due to our donors for making this ministry possible. Once again, you can become a donor at evidenceforfaith.org give. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org give. And help us keep this broadcast free. You can also support us by sharing, subscribing, and leaving a review on this podcast. If you would like to hear Michael live, you can also check out our bookings calendar at evidenceforfaith.org or book your own event with Michael. So this is Charlotte signing off. I'll see you on the next episode.